Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And uh, I hope everyone is having a good morning. Unfortunately, I was unable to be here last week, so I hope everyone coped okay and um, had the, um, you know, it was a good show. And um, but I, I had some work I had to um, to get to. But we've got a we've got a great show again today. Is actually there's quite a lot of uh, news that's happened over the past. Well, two weeks for me since I've been on air, and um, but you know, even just in the last week, we've got a new prime minister, and uh, I think that that was one of the more fascinating kind of um, discussions around, I guess, all the kind of machinations of what happened with that leadership spill and the way it has really kind of torn the Liberal Party apart. I think that the um, you know factions which they long deny exist have really started to kind of really open up and a lot of the ministers except for Christopher Pine, a new defence minister from the Howard years, are really starting to uh, dissipate, which I'm sure is a joy to many on 3CR who have long campaigned against those folks. Um, we've got the a terrible situation of Chelsea Manning wanting to, you know, trying to take part in a speaking tour and being denied entry into Australia, which we're going to touch on that a little bit later on. Um, and, yeah, a few other things. John McCain has, you know, died last week, and many have sort of held up him as a kind of hero, even on the left, which I find quite surprising. This is a um, person who, you know, was a warmonger, essentially, and he you know, long kind of held the truism of, you know, America being a great country and the kind of drive for war that America pursued under Bush and for his, that's what his kind of thing was all about. So I guess it kind of shows how far we've gone under um, Trump and, and other leaders that these kind of people can be hailed as, you know, something positive. But I, um, we, we've got, um, we've got a guest coming in a little bit later from the Melbourne Educators for Environmental and Social Justice to talk about um, the AU elections. And we're going to have our regular program over the wall coming in a bit later, and we're going to be having a bit of a discussion around the ten years on from the global financial crisis, the lasting legacy and impacts of that, and in particular, 
we're going to be looking at Venezuela and the kind of the crisis that is really engulfing the country of Venezuela at the moment. And I think just to um, some of the things, yeah, as I mentioned at the start, we'll, we'll get through into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Well, as I mentioned at the start, John McCain died uh, last week, and John McCain was a long-term senator, a six-term U.S. senator in Arizona. Famously, was captured uh, while he was serving in Vietnam, and he was he ran for president, and it's it's been I think quite confusing to see the left, even some. Um, Peace organisations were putting up inspirational words of <clears throat> of John McCain, kind of reflecting on his life and the <clears throat> good and bad that has happened throughout him, as if he had no say in anything that he had done. You know that his his actions and his words were just merely things that happened and the world kind of happened around him. But this is an influential um, figure in American politics in the world who seemed, to, you know, at, at the end of his life, kind of try to absolve all responsibility for the actions that his years of campaigning ha- has caused. And it's interesting, I think, in the kind of drive of the military-industrial complex that is at the moment where the kind of spin and the way that words are being manipulated to to change what we have kind of known as the weapons of war in the sense of, of the words that are used to describe what happens uh, are being changed to kind of really confuse everybody and to try to let, not let people know of, of what's happening. And I think that's... You know, that's very much what happened here, this kind of rewriting of someone's legacy. And, yeah, it was, it was very interesting to watch even the the funeral which took place, uh, I think, over the weekend, where he had asked Donald Trump not to attend, and he had Barack Obama and George W. Bush there as to kind of show the unity of um, that McCain was about, apparently. But I think really what it shows is that Barack Obama, John McCain, and George W. Bush really don't have that much that is, uh, you know, uncommon from each other. They they all pursued um, a part, really the same part of the American pursuit of global dominance and military might. And while they may have spoken differently about how they got there and they may speak differently about the kind of issues that come from that, they're really pursuing the same thing. And... I think that that is kind of the lesson to take from that. There's a there's some interesting interesting articles that touch on on kind of McCain's legacy online. You can see uh, in Red Flag magazine and online redflag.org.au, and there's a couple of other 
uh, sites that have got some um, good articles that kind of cut through some of the issues that we're talking about there. Now, another issue which has been uh, really dominating the news over the past week is the speaking tour, which was going to be happening uh, with Chelsea Manning. And as part of the restructure of the government, then we, um, Peter Dutton, who lost out uh, for the leadership and the prime ministership, uh, was given his home affairs portfolio, but he was he did have the immigration part of that portfolio taken out, which does really significantly weaken that portfolio. And so as part of that, no, it was interesting, I guess, that the au pair situation with um, AFL CEO Gillan McLaughlin came out. Un- unsurprisingly, a whole lot of issues have come out as the kind of turmoil in the Liberal Party has happened that I'm sure the camps of the people that are disgruntled, such as Turnbull and Julie Bishop, are, you know, I would say most likely responsible for leaking some of the information coming out, which is further destabilising the government. That that issue came out, but it's actually, that was when Dutton had say in the immigration part, but as I say, his, his portfolio has been weakened where... He is no longer in charge of that immigration part. But um, the new minister, whose name has just slipped my mind, um, has denied Chelsea Manning a, a visa, which meant that the Sydney Opera House speaking um, part of the speaking tour had to happen via Skype, which you know I think is very disappointing for people that were in wanting to be in attendance and, and attended the night. They're, they were still able to obviously hear... Um, Chelsea's story and to, you know, hear how how she came about to to be kind of leaking really important information about what's happening, uh, the war on terror and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, it's a shame that she wasn't able to be here in person. And I think for somebody who has already experienced a lot of you know, imprisonment and, and all the kind of things that uh, happened through her um, trial and everything like that to then have to travel around across the world and then be denied a visa is just another kind of, I guess, small step in the things that she has had to experience. But nonetheless, I think it is, um, you know, it's disheartening that that is the kind of attitude that our government has. And I've sort of read and listened to a few things over the weekend kind of talking about this and I think it is an interesting discussion on you know there have been other figures over the past couple of years that have been denied visas as well which were by Dutton at that time um, you know and a th- from a broad range of political views and I, I guess it's interesting to think do we support anyone having their visa revoked or, you know, what are the kind of grounds on which we do that? And some of the other people that were denied were on political grounds as well. But I guess from, you know, a different political perspective than we may have most of the people on 3CR. But, you know, is it better to kind of let people come in and and then and then see the 
you know, impact that has. I, I mean, I guess you'd argue that certainly what we're seeing at the moment across the world with the rise of uh, far-right protesters and things like that, we don't necessarily want some of those people to be coming here and, and stirring up hate speech and galvanizing their kind of views. So there is certainly an issue around that kind of thing. But really, with Chelsea Manning, what I, that is clearly, that's not what um, what she's here. She's come to tell her kind of story about what happened to her and and also, you know, to further expose what is happening with the U.S. drive for, for war and, and domination across the world, of which Australia is really intimately intertwined with. And I think what we have seen with this Abbott-Turnbull government is that they are really disinterested in having any kind of transparency with the Australian public. And I think that that is really clear with the banning of people, workers and journalists accessing the issues that are happening for refugees in Manus and Manus Island and Nauru. And this is further evidence of that, I would argue, because they don't want these kind of secrets coming out. They don't want the world to know what they're doing as part of their so-called war on terror. And, you know, that this is kind of further the persecution that's happened of Julian Assange as well. And, and obviously... Chelsea Manning's uh, documents, the information was leaked through WikiLeaks, which is you know, the company that, the organisation that Julian Assange is a part of. And it, it certainly does bring into question, well, I guess further highlight what would be the impact of when Julian does uh, hopefully um, get free one day from the Ecuadorian embassy and what that may actually look like, because if the Australian government won't allow Chelsea Manning entry into Australia, I think the long-running kind of hope of many activists in Australia was that uh, hopefully one day Julian Assange can be allowed to return to Australia. Well, I think this is an, ex an example that that would be in danger of, um, you know, him, him even making it in here. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really interesting. New Zealand, uh, who have got, um, you know, quite a lot of progressive things happening in their politics at the moment, uh, have, you know, allowed Chelsea to be part of, uh, to, to um, enter into New Zealand and... So perhaps that's sort of arrangement that um, Julian might want to look at. Well, I'm sure we got um, anything else we want to discuss of alternative news. Um, we might just have a little break um, of playing an announcement here and then um, come back after that. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. 3CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. 
Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. We've got a special guest in here. <laughs> Good morning, James. Thanks for holding the fort as I made my way in. Apologies to all of our listeners for being late. My my father had a, has a lot of good outages and he says he says that what lateness really shows is just a lack of respect for others. <laughs> uh, well, we um, we did discuss um, over the weekend doing a little bonus um, footy podcast. So is that something that people have enjoyed any of our <laughs> footy banter over the year? Um, listen out for that. But we're going to have a small chat about um, a couple of the issues in footy now. Jackson, you want to talk about something? Well, yes, I am running quite late, so I don't think I've got everything in front of me right now. But I just was reading over the weekend, uh, the AFL have released their new... Uh, trans and gender diverse policy for um, uh, trans women um, and uh, gender non-binary people wanting to play in the AFLW. Um, broadly, they've released a lot of, I, I suppose one of the interesting aspects is that they've released a lot of kind of medical quotas that um, these women need to meet before they'll be considered to be able to compete in the AFL. Um it's something to do with the level of testosterone uh, in their body over a period of years. But also, they haven't defined, they've specified things around height and weight and um, <clears throat> standing vertical leap, you know, those kind of testings they do at the draft and things. They haven't, they've just they've just blanketly kind of said that uh, trans men are welcome to compete, but there won't be any standards that they have to meet uh, because they can't see any kind of competitive advantage, you know, even though, you know, many scientific studies have shown that women have a far higher pain threshold than men, for example. Uh, so I think it's, I don't know, I just think it's it's an interesting little path to go down when you start to read. Um, you know, I think it, it's good that they've put together a policy, but, um, you know, it's so kind of, the, it's, it's, it's so medicalized and in the language, you know, and it, it makes... I don't know. It just feels like a lot of kind of hoops to jump through, and a, and and the, there's a dangerous kind of feeling of um, you know, who is a a proper trans person in terms of wanting to compete in the AFL. There, there's a lot about way of the it. AFLW, which um, you know, it feels like you know, you see when a small organisation starts up or you know whatever that you kind of just start doing something and then there is an issue arises, so then you have to work out a policy around this and whatever. And, and for a small organisation, that's a perfectly legitimate way to do things you maybe didn't envisage the thing would get this big or whatever. But for an organisation like the AFL, which is a you know multi-billion dollar industry, it has a lot of people that work for them and understand all of these issues, um, you know, campaign around a lot of social issues and things like that. The AFLW as a whole, it, it appears like that. There's... 
really little thought put into a lot of the bigger picture issues. And, uh, you know, there's been quite a few people that have argued that they wanted a distraction from the Essendon drug saga that had happened for a few years. Wow, that's uh, cynical. And that they had, you know, because for a long time, women and and lots of people have campaigned for Mm. an AFLW league. Mm. And then it kind of just came out of nowhere. Um, And, you know, it, it... it has been a great success, but there, there's still there's a lot of issues that they don't seem to have a forward planning for, you know, and I think that this is one of those as well. And I don't, you know, it's certainly not a perfect institution, mm. um, but, you know, I think that it sounds like they're reaching a positive outcome in this situation. And I, I think that mostly that they will reach these positive outcomes. It just seems a bit strange to not have forward plan. I mean, the pay issue is another thing. Massive issue. The the fact that... And the justification for it, the pay issue, is one of the things that's really bothered me, you know, that it's just not financially viable, it's not commercially viable to pay uh, these uh, female athletes what is a fair uh, amount compar- you know, comparative to the men or even for the amount of work they're doing, the training, whatever. It's nowhere near... Um, fair at the moment it's wildly um imbalanced and the the argument is well it's commercially not viable to pay these women but it's not commercially viable to have a team on the gold coast it's not commercially viable to have a team in western sydney they're pouring millions on millions of dollars into those experiments you know in the hope that that will return something down the line which is exactly the same as as what a women's competition should be they haven't said well because nobody ever goes to watch the gold coast play all of those players will get paid a tenth of what every other AFL player gets paid, you know. It's well, just... they've done the opposite. I mean, and they even talked exactly about right. incle- increasing their salaries so they can hang on to players. Mm. So that kind of hypocrisy is, um, is is frustrating. But yeah, I agree with you that overall, you know, like I, they open their um, their gender diversity policy uh, <clears throat> with the guideline that the AFL recognises that Australian rules football is not just a sporting game, but a vehicle for bringing families and communities together. The AFL is committed to the inclusion of gender-diverse people in our game, and the intention of our policy is that gender-diverse players registered to play football in the competition that accords with their identified gender are supported in doing so in a safe and inclusive environment. The AFL is committed to ensuring that gender-diverse players can participate in our game free from harassment and discrimination. So I think all of that is a really good place to start the policy from. Some of the language that just... I don't know, like, I, I, sometimes I feel like the, the medicalization of people's identities is, you know, a strange space to get into. Um, but th- this is the language that I, th- I thought was a bit strange. So given the, the physical nature of Australian rules football, it is considered that maintenance of testosterone at or below 5 N mole, nanomole, or I'm not quite sure what the N mole stands for, but I imagine it's a milliliter or even less, per litre for at least two years is reasonable to ensure that the competitive advantage of higher levels of testosterone have dissipated to an acceptable degree at the time the trans or non-binary person proposes to play in the AFLW competition. This threshold requirement has been the subject of extensive medical consultation by the AFL. If the threshold requirement is met, trans women and non-binary people seeking to nominate for the AFLW draft must produce information including, to the extent available, data regarding their height, weight, bench press, 20-metre sprint, vertical jump, GPS data and 2-kilometre run. And what I find really strange about all of those testings is they are normally the tests, if you do very well on them, they would recommend you to definitely play. Mm. But essentially, I, what I imagine what this means is if you are a trans or non-binary identifying person, 
if you do very well in these tests, they're going to say, you can't play. Mm. So I think it's, I, I don't know. It's, That's very confusing. Yeah. It's so just, you should just not do well in the combine sort of thing. Yeah, I guess it's, well, yeah, it's kind of if similar you're, to... If you're not a trans woman you're, um, and you do well in those, you know, another... You're just very big and very tall and very strong. So how does that work? Should they be excluded as well? Or? Well, it sounds like a competitive advantage to me. I mean, Lance Franklin seems to have a competitive advantage. <laughs> Do you know? I just think this, this... So much so that he um, only trained for 20 minutes for the year and still managed to get a spot in the All-Australian team ahead of Tom Hawkins. Anyway, <laughs> and captain. It's okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think the latter point has some validity. Oh, yeah, I actually think that Hawkins had a more consistent year than Lance. Certainly. But Lance's blinding brilliance... At times. He's certainly a better player. No, but I guess, you know, what we're saying um, before the whole show becomes a football show is, you know, I think even with the pay thing, I'm not advocating that um, it's the right thing or, or not. But if, you know, what the issue is now, why not say this is our plan for the next five years that it will, you know, slowly increase over this time until it gets to X or, mm. you know, what's tied to what the AFL says is tied to this is that, the entry is free um, to the games. So the start of each season, Bump that price. they just keep saying, they're like, oh, yeah, no, it, there won't be a price again. Just say it will be for the first two years, we're going to have free entry so that we can try to generate people to come and, and make this a part of their activities that they do. The third year will make it this price. And, you know, let us know that there's a plan actually happening here rather than, it being decided on the run, which, you know, actually is a criticism a lot of people have of the AFL generally, actually, that a lot of the rules are kind of made up as they go. Yeah. Um, to give you just a comparative uh, example as well, with the, the current um, minimum payment for uh, a top-level female cricketer in Australia is $72,000. You know, so I'm pretty sure the best paid players in the AFLW are getting $25,000, you know, which is obviously a hell of a lot less. Um, Yeah, and um, yeah, I just think they could do a bit better. And, you know, I guess to further the kind of gendered, um, you know, way in which the sport is reported, I saw Daisy Pearce um, is having... Twins and congratulations. This was front page news, but not the you know, and that's great for her. Mm. Um, but I think that when was the last time when are her football achievements on the front page? But you know, she has a child, or she's going to be having a child, and and that is the front page news. And I think interestingly enough, with with Jay Z as well, that she has uh, obviously television and radio. Um, you know, responsibilities, that's part of her job. Mm-hmm. And she's also a midwife. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of, you know, that's four kind of jobs that somebody who's widely regarded as the, um, you know, if not the best, the most uh, famous um, women's footballer has to undergo that many jobs in order to just, um, you know, play the sport. Mm. I think we've got an interview coming up with a representative from Message. Uh, so maybe we'll play a CSA and then we'll um, come back with Lucy Honan. G'day, this is Ozzy Butler from Astronomy Class. 
You're tuned to 3CR on 855am or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. You gotta remember, Nanox's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855am on your dial, or perhaps you're listening to a podcast in the future. Maybe you downloaded it from 3cr.org.au or some other place that you get your podcasts, all those online podcast places. Now, Lucy Honan is a member and organiser with Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice, or MESSAGE, which is a pretty choice acronym, I reckon. Uh, MESSAGE is a growing organisation which shares radical ideas and resources online for teachers and educators to bring them into their classrooms and schools. They host monthly forums and workshops here in NAM or in Melbourne. And if you uh, type MESSAGE, M-E-S-E-J, into Facebook, you'll find their public group. Now, last week, Message co-hosted a strategy meeting about campaigning for a stronger left-wing union in the upcoming internal AEU elections in October. Lucy was an organiser for that meeting and is here to talk to us about the ideas of Message and how the ideas of Message and the union could be brought closer together. Lucy, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jackson. Now... The upcoming elections will determine AU leadership for the next three years. Now, I should say first off that you are also an AU representative at a secondary school and a member of the organisation's Victorian State Council. What do you think the AU could learn from Message and why do you want more Message members to get active in the union? Um, I think it's really important for any union, but the but for my union and the education unions in general to have a really strong base of activists. Um, 
I, I think that we need um, people who are active um, and people who are, who know what's going on in the classrooms um, and in the schools at a, at a at a local level to be active within their unions um, at all times. But message is particularly um, political, I suppose. Um, the forums and the um, the events and the activities that we've put on have been about trying to crystallise a view of education um, in Australia at the moment um, around like thorny issues like the school to prison pipeline, for example, for Indigenous kids, um, or um, around NAPLAN and the, the really terrible impacts that it's having on education. So um, these are things that obviously the Australian Education Union has historically had a really important role to play in, um, you know, organising all teachers, all union member teachers around these issues can be incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, the Australian Education Union is really, it's got high density. There are a lot of teachers and, and educators who are members. So um, I think that if we can bring and infuse some of the, the clear radical politics of message into the union um, more generally, then I think that we could have a powerful force with really strong, clear politics in what is becoming a, like a political age of a lot of kind of unclarity, backlash and, and, and kind of, frankly, quite scary politics. So, yeah, I think it would be great to have, have more message people and message politics active in the union. Can you just talk a little bit about your involvement with message? What, what are the key aims and concerns of the group, would you say? Um, so message is a, a very, um, what's the word? It's a network, I suppose, and it's got a few different aims um, and foci. Um, one is about like arming educators with tools and resources and um you know, it's a very kind of practical outlook in terms of what do we need to, to deal with racism or sexism in our classrooms and what is it that, you know, for example, um, non-Indigenous or, or white teachers need to know when we're going into our classrooms dealing with racism, how do we, how do we in really practical terms deal with those issues that are becoming large and looming? Um, but then also we put that in a political context. So what are the, what are the structures? What are the policies and so on that we also need to be really active about, um, to challenge, to challenge the kind of the overarching situation that we find ourselves in? And that includes, um, I suppose education policies. It includes questions around funding and school funding, and it includes um, broader policies around, you know, for example, what the Liberals are taking to the next election around um, building more prisons or, um, you know, their their kind of hysteria around African gangs. So there's a whole combination of politics there. Mm. I I am curious of your position when you go along to a message meeting and you're you know you're also an AU mm. rep and I imagine you know I've been to one myself and I know there's educators at these meetings who are quite new to the job and there's educators that have been teachers or you know uh, working in education for a long period of time. What do you see as you know the recurring issues and problems that message members are seeing in Victorian schools at the moment? What do you think a member of message wants from the AU? A member of message wants from the AEU. I think we want a stronger union. Um, I think I think a lot of us are feeling quite frustrated that we're in this really important job, um, and we have a lot of ideas and creativity, and um, you know we want to we want to be able to um, change 
students' lives and contribute um, in a useful way to the communities that we're teaching in. But we're kind of strangled by, um, you know, just the very basics of our conditions, teaching so many classes or not, not being allowed to... Um, deviate beyond the very intensely standardised curriculum. Mm. Um, or, for example, um, you know, we have to suffer through professional development sessions that are not professionally developing us at all. They're kind of the latest pseudoscience coming out of the department about, you know, these high-yield strategies are going to change everything. Better use them. We better see you use them um, or else, you know. And this kind of um, really heavy-handed surveillance um, politics from, mm. from the education department. And so I think members, message members and radical teachers and radical educators want unions to stand up to fight for conditions um, and, and to also fight for respect for educators. So that, you know, the, the questions of who decides what happens in a school, what happens in a classroom um, and what happens among, among um, educators is decided by educators themselves, not mm. crackpots from, you know, like whatever latest fad high-yield, whatever it is that's coming high out of the department. <laughs> yeah, high-impact teaching techniques and all these type of things. These sort of things, exactly, yeah. It is an interesting balance, isn't it? Like, I, I understand the last CBA was, you know, celebrated in some quarters for delivering teachers more time in professional development, you know, like guaranteeing them, you know, a day off a term to, to work on their own professional development. But then when when that time is taken up with these, um, as you say, very... Uh, structured, myopic, d- directed types of professional development. You know, we often hear about better and worse models of state education. You know, I feel like every video on Facebook uh, paints Finland as this teacher's utopia and the US as the opposite. Where do you think mm. Victoria stacks up right now? Like, wh- what is the experience of, mm. of being a teacher, do you think? Um, I think Victoria is probably in Australia at the cutting edge of um, neoliberal demise. <laughs> That's a, I don't know, there's a contradiction in being the cutting edge of a demise, but <laughs> I, think, I think Victorian schools were the first in Australia to be um, decentralised. So the department during the Kennedy era and since then has just kind of, um, in lots of different um, ways, washed its hands of central responsibility for for um, for schools, and has let each school be its own um, essentially small business fiefdom. But that's happening all around Australia with my school and and various state versions of the same sort of model of decentralisation. Mm. Um, and that means that schools are are becoming corporatised. Um, that means that. Uh, the kind of collective sense of public education being a, a very broad and um, inclusive um, endeavour that, you know, that is the responsibility of the public. I think that is is um, declining and you have crazy things like schools really spending a lot of public schools this year, spending a lot of money on marketing and also spending a lot of money uh, trying to get their scores to be competitive over and above actually educationally important um, 
you know, things like, you know, learning and developing students and, and giving students opportunities for creativity and connection and all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, each each school in Victoria now, not just the private schools, but all the public schools are competing for competing for scores as if it's a stock market system um, on the My School website. And that has led to very shallow um, educational outlooks. Um, it's led to very short-term thinking um, and lots of reaching for silver bullet strategy turnaround sort of um, things. And I think that has also led to a, a, a serious de-skilling and, a de, um, and a, like a lack of trust in, in teachers um, and, a, and a blaming of teachers. Mm. You know, the whole teacher bashing phenomenon has, has really taken off. Um, so I, I think in terms of how Victorian schools stack up, you know, like there are some t- statistics saying that we're, you know, kids in, in Victorian schools, the families in Victorian schools are paying now, um, you know, for 30% of the actual educational needs. Even though they're in public schools, the requirements of what it, what it costs to, to send that child to school are now actually being taken on privately by parents. So mm. resourcing kids with um, laptops, with excursions, with um, the so-called voluntary school contributions which have now become compulsory um, you know all of this kind of privatization of, of the cost of school has has really taken off in Victoria in a big way um, and that is to the detriment that's that 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 has led to inequality um, it's led to segregation between schools and um, a, a greater division between you know uh, the outcomes of the the poorer students and the and the wealthiest students. Yeah, there's really good points you make there, Lucy. Uh, we're speaking with Lucy Honan, who's from Message, which is the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice. Look, you just touched on there, you know, the phenomenon of uh, standardised testing and the need to meet certain uh, quotas and standards by the school. I feel like there's not just NAPLAN, there's also PISA and there's, you know, EduTests and all these different, um, you know, markers that and hoops that students have to jump through how do you think that impacts in the classroom and and the ability of teachers to make lasting connections with their kids and prepare them for for the world as it as it really is Mm. um i think it's detrimental i really i it really concerns me because you know when i was I first started teaching um, nearly 10 years ago and, I mean, this stuff was sort of creeping in. But there were a lot of teachers around who had just, they they told me, you know, I would spend holidays preparing, you know, down to the last line um, lesson plans and unit planners and things like this and I'd get in on the Monday before the kids come back and, and there would be, you know, veteran teachers who would say, yep, that's a good plan, but just be, I want you to be prepared for that not being what the kids need. You need to always keep in mind what it is and who the people in front of you are and go with that and, and, and hold true to that. And I took that advice really seriously, um, you know, and it meant things like throwing out the book that I had planned to, that we would go with. It, it just didn't suit them. It wasn't age appropriate. It was too, too um, simplistic for them. I needed to find something else. And there were resources in the school that meant that I could do that. And also there was latitude in terms of teacher trust. 
mm. um, that a teacher could make that decision. Now, it is absolutely the opposite. Um, not only do things have to be tied down well in advance in eight different documents, mm. if a teacher deviates from, um, you know, the weekly planner or the, or the standardised, internally standardised kind of plan, uh, there are all sorts of consequences that are, you know, potentially detrimental to that person's career. There was a, a teacher at my school who was hauled in to explain herself at the principal in the principal's office because another teacher had seen her um, taking oral presentations out in the corridor at a time in the term where they were supposed to be doing um, written assessments, not oral presentations. As it turns out, this person was actually having a conversation with a student, but you can see the kind of, like, just sort of bizarreness about mm. what, what, what on earth would be the problem with that teacher having made the decision to assess a student's, you know, ability to give a speech at that particular moment, and why would anyone else care about that decision that she's made? Mm. Um, so, you know, and then I, I guess your question about what are the what are the impacts on students, you can't... You can't serve both masters at once. You can't serve a document and a bureaucracy at the same time as you're serving the very human needs of the you. And that was what those veteran teachers taught me when I first started teaching and what I would like to be able to pass on to my colleagues. But to do so requires them to be actually quite militant unionists who are prepared to defend their right to do so. Mm. So I think that's that probably explains to some extent why 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 teachers are, are radicalizing and why there are quite a lot of young teachers who are who are finding themselves in a situation of wanting to be decent teachers and, and needing to stand up for their right to do so. Mm. Lucy it's James here. I just I wondered with the um you know kind of leadership of the um teachers to be organizing together and to kind of you know showing a way to you know not just like harness I guess the radicalization of the um, aspects of unionism that trying to do but you know just to show that there are ways of organizing and you know the solidarity of working together you know what might be the impact on students you know are there students that are you know inspired by that wanting to form their own kind of groups or, you know, is there a means for which some of the students, I guess, particularly older students, but, you know, even primary school students can see that as a model of trying to get change to happen themselves in their schools as well? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, I think that is absolutely ideal um, that students can, yeah, students can learn from the real lessons of, of teachers and adults around them taking action and organizing some of my favorite stories and what I would I would really like to see happen in Australia are um, some of the test boycott um, activists in the United States who organize boycotts and refusals to, to um, pass out um, standardized exams in Seattle um, and after long battles and really well organized um, fight from the teachers you know the, the teachers refused to give out the tests um, and then the principals and the administrators from the county came in and handed out the tests and asked the students to sit down. But by the time this had happened, um, some of the older students, the, the 11th graders, had organised a bulletin and were standing out the front of the school um, handing out the bulletin to the younger kids coming in who would, who would have to do the test, encouraging them not to sit down and take the test. 
And so the boycott of the test was actually in the final element carried through by the students. Um, and I would really like to see that kind of, uh, yeah, mutual infusion, I suppose, of t- student and teacher activism. I think that would be that would be great on so many levels, whether it's around racism or, or, or test taking or um, funding for public schools. I think there's a lot of a lot of space for that sort of. Um, co-created yeah. <laughs> um, mm. activism. It's a very good lifelong lesson. Now, um, thanks for hanging out with us for so long. I just want to touch really quickly before I let you go on schools funding because, you know, when you open up the AU website at the moment and the materials that are distributed to schools recently, school funding and pay concerns seem to be the highlighted issues. I had a quick read mm. through the information and, uh, you know, it says the federal government is guaranteeing state schools only 20% of what the Gonski report indicated they needed, while private schools get 80% of what they apparently need. Um, aside from, you know, just wondering how the federal government can justify that type of decision, I wonder, you know, if you are successful in getting um, some more uh, message members, you know, involved in the AU and elected to some uh, representative bodies in these October elections, would schools funding and pay increases be a focus of an AU with a more uh, radical representation at the top level? I, I don't think school funding can be avoided. It is a huge issue and it's like especially the disproportion of funding going to private schools. I mean, that headline is bad, but it's even worse when you look at combined with the Victorian state government's funding for private schools. Each school in Victoria, when you take a, a public school and you compare it to an equivalent enrolment private school, the private school will be getting more government funding than the government school will be. It is absolutely appalling and it's not just a federal government issue, it's also a state government issue. From my opinion, yeah, oh, no, funding would be funding would be a massive issue, but to I don't think that we we can rely on um marginal seats campaigning, online um, campaigning, other forms of what what the AU refers to as community campaigning. Um, I think we need to we need to start taking industrial action around this issue because it is just insane. Um, and I think that's where our union power lies is in in being able to withdraw our labour and say we won't go back to school and we won't teach under conditions that are so so stilted towards privilege and un- unequal distribution of funding. Um, and that's, I, uh, that is something that is difficult for our union to do um, because for a long time we have only um, fought within very, very, very fine legal parameters, if then, um, and taking industrial action outside of enterprise bargaining periods is illegal um, in this country. And I think that's exactly what we need to start countenancing and start preparing for is to break those rules and fight fight for better funding um, but as I say, taking strike action that might be deemed illegal, but doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think about you know the the reaction to the tram and bus uh, and the rail drivers in Sydney. You know, teachers can have a huge impact um, if they choose to take industrial action, and that you know that time might be getting closer and closer. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us this morning, um, and best of luck uh, with your work with Message and with the upcoming um, AU elections. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. So that was Lucy Honan from uh, Message, which is uh, the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice. And up next on 3CR uh, will be Over the Wall. 
And over the wall, this week we'll be looking at the automated monster of Centrelink RoboDebts again, I think all through the month of September. Mm-hmm. And today's edition will reintroduce RoboDebts and what they do. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Listeners, if you've been on Centrelink payment any time in the last five years, chances are you've received a letter from the government claiming that you owe them money. If you haven't received the letter yet, it's possibly only a matter of time. This is a public service announcement. Hundreds of thousands of Australians have received what looks like a debt recovery notice. It's important that you know how to respond when this first letter arrives. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. We'll be running through the history of the Centrelink robo-debt fiasco after the launch of the OCI Automated System in mid-2016. Let's hear now an interview with Lindsay Jackson, coordinator of the Not My Debt campaign, interviewed by Duncan Graham. Lindsay starts by discussing how Centrelink's robo-debts began. We started to see people talking about issues with getting these debts from Centrelink, not really understanding or having information as to where they'd come from or why they'd been issued. And the debts were going back years, so people were being asked to go back and get payslips from five or six years ago. And lots and lots of people saying that they'd also had these debts. The media was starting to report on it, but there didn't seem to be much cohesion around collecting really solid information about what was going on, and it really got my interest. And I just can't see which organisations or bodies are going to really be able to pull this information together quickly so that people can figure out what's going on. And so through that, I offered to build a campaign website and start to create a movement and a discussion about this together. And we started to collect stories about people that were affected by this. A whole bunch of people started to receive these letters. Yeah. Um, So what we found from the Senate inquiry was that people were just getting these contacts from debt collectors saying you've got this huge Centrelink debt. And for so many people, it had been years since they were on Centrelink. And so all of a sudden, they're, they're starting to be harassed and hounded. And it just really added to the frustration and the harm for people, really. And here they are lumped with thousands of dollars worth of debt that they can't explain. There was one case that was shared with us where five years ago, a couple on an age pension got an inheritance payout. They reported that to Centrelink and have had no troubles with it. And and from their understanding, everything that they reported was fine and that there were no issues. And now five years later, the automation has triggered that there is an issue and that there's a debt to be raised. And that's not the first time that I've seen an account of something where someone has reported something and 
there's been no action on it for years and years and then the automation of the system has triggered a death from it. So it's incredibly confusing because people think five years ago that they're doing the right thing and that's the common thread throughout this. People understand that at the time they've reported fairly and accurately and they've done all of the things that they've needed to do. They've provided the paperwork at the time and yet five, six, seven years later, they're, they're being hit with a debt. And then they're also being asked to resubmit paperwork that they also had believed that the system should have. So it's really confusing and it's really onerous as well. The OCI Automatic Robo-Debt Scheme was originally flagged in the 2014 budget and passed in the 2015 budget and the projections over the forward estimates of money raised by the OCI automated system is billions of dollars. And listeners, that's money raised by taking from pensioners, the unemployed and the recently unemployed, people who aren't wealthy. The numbers are really troubling. There's an expansion that's underway. So the first stage of it was to get around about $300 million. That was the first projections that were coming through in the budget. And that was for people that were no longer on Centrelink. So that's been the first round that we've seen. And then the next phase of that is age pensioners to start doing that same sort of algorithm matching for age pensioners. And that's projected to reap in a billion dollars. So that's three times the amount of revenue these forward estimates were projecting were going to come in. And you roll that out to $4 billion of revenue, it's a huge amount of people that are being affected. And what we don't know is the actual revenue that has been raised. The department hasn't released those figures. And it's so troubling that the department is continuing on with this, that the ministers see this as acceptable, that the Prime Minister sees this as acceptable. You know, how is it just to be issued with a debt that the onus isn't on the department to clearly explain and provide all of the information that an individual needs to comfortably know that they owe this money? And people are really concerned and now they're starting to be concerned for their parents and, and how their parents are going to be able to push back against a system that's really quite stretched as well. So people are being told to phone Centrelink to provide information or upload documents into a system and you know some people have just had such difficulty going back five years to get pay slips from their employers. Taking points from not my debt suggestions of what should be done, the first point you make is that you should keep a diary of all interactions and collect receipt numbers. Yeah, and, you know, again, we've had accounts of people where they have asked for receipt numbers through Centrelink and they've been denied that. So that's been difficult. And also the app has been disabling the ability for people to be able to take screenshots. So then photos of the screen or any information that you can get. But definitely document everything down, document who you're talking to and any steps that you're taking second point you make on the website is to not ignore the letter. Yeah, and that was something that people were doing, especially in the early stages, again, because they hadn't received Centrelink for years and they hadn't had anything to do with it. So there was 
sort of this feeling that it was sort of an automated system letter and it didn't apply to people so they didn't have to worry about it. That was really common early on. They just believe this is going to be an error that will go away and yeah, you can't. It's something that you need to address and to start a process. And then once people are in that system, then they're being asked to confirm information about how much they earn during that period of time that is part of the, depending on the answers there, that's part of the process that is then triggering this debt. It'll say that there's been some sort of discrepancy or that the department needs further information as it's referring people to go to MyGov to log in there and, and people don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. And now with some of the, the changes that they've made, if there's a debt that's calculated, there's a screen that's asking people to accept that debt at the time. Um, and so I think one of the things to be really mindful of is that just because you've clicked on, yes, I accept this is a debt because you've, you haven't been sure on what to select, you do have the right to appeal these debts. Between November 2016 and January 2017, the Ombudsman's Office received an 87% increase in complaints from the public about issues with Centrelink. Stay tuned in coming weeks for more information about Centrelink's robo-debts and how you can better cope with this. In the meantime, I suggest you search notmydebt.com.au. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. It was almost a bit of a Richie Beto I slipped into there. Anyway, um, well, you're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and it's 8.02am. You enjoyed uh, Over the Wall, and they're going to be bringing us more around the <clears throat> robo-debt crisis. And, you know, I think it's really uh, important what they're offering is um, some practical advice on what people can do if they're affected as well. Mm, even the... Uh Seagulls here at Cape Town are horrified by the robo-debts. Moving on. <laughs> uh, we have a guest in the studio. Um, his name is Hayden Annabel. Uh, welcome, Hayden. Thank you, Jackson. Thank you for having me. Thank you, James. No worries. Um, Hayden is a super Adobe builder uh, who has been uh, trained in California, I believe, the uh, birthplace of super Adobe. Would that be... About very, right? very correct. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, Super Adobe and why you yourself got into it? What was your journey towards becoming a Super Adobe builder? <laughs> um, yeah, well, Super Adobe, as you mentioned, comes from California. Well, it's it was um, refined and um, evolved in California um, by an Iranian architect called Nada Khalili. And um, he was a traditionally trained architect um, and worked in the U.S. for many years, became very ill and disillusioned with the entire um, construction industry and how uh, difficult it was for the majority of the world to have access to good, strong, um, well-performing 
uh, architecture in their homes. So he decided to start experimenting, and he did that out in the um, Hesperia foothills of California, which is about an hour and a half out of L.A., he did that with just a group of his volunteer architects and they started playing around with a technique that had um, always existed mainly in, in wartime. So people would build buildings with sandbags mm-hmm. for munitions shelters and um, little barracks and things like that in the trenches. That was uh, a very common practice <clears throat> in both the world wars. And then after the Second World War, um, it slowly moved into building... Um, more structures like farm structures and things like that, and then was actually quite specifically pioneered to become a house and a home. So, yeah, that happened, and he then pretty much took this technology, refined it, changed it a bit, and also merged it with um, architecture from Iran and um, all over the Middle East, which is centuries old, so harnessing the power of the arch, and also coupled with the ability to be able to build with the soil underneath your feet, pretty much. Mm. So localised building in a huge way. And the simplicity of it um, also made it available to almost anyone in the world. So what are the, using the soil, and what are the kind of, like, what are the other materials that could be yep. used? And, you know, said that's kind of desert-like conditions um, between about, it was where it was developed and, you know, so that would fit um, within, I guess, how does that fit in like a Victorian kind of context and, you know, what where, what kind of places could these kind of um, buildings take place? Mm, great question. It is a big challenge of the technology to be able to take it from um, a real desert-like, um, although it snows and rains a little bit in um, uh, where it's from, they are mainly... Um, mainly developed in a in a desert-like environment so i have personally had quite a lot of challenges and a challenge that faces the technology um bringing it to like a victorian climate uh where there is a lot more rain um and a lot more humidity so you can take um the main materials are a polypropylene woven bag which normally is cut into what you'd see as a big 20 kilo rice sack or grain sack so you can find them anywhere in the world because anywhere grows food uh, and grows it um, hopefully on a large scale. So you get it before it gets cut into a grain sack. Um, so it's a long roll, like a long toilet roll of this polypropylene tube, so a bag pretty much. And then you need some barbed wire and you need something to smash it down with, so a tamp. And that's about it. So it's And if you're building a <clears throat> circular building or a dome, you need two chains as well. So it's incredibly simple. Um, that's it, and you need a shovel to be able to dig your um, dig your soil from underneath. And that's really as basic as it gets. And anything up from that, you can build and expand, obviously. And a beautiful thing about it is, you really need a community around you. You really, really need assistance from um, your family and friends to be able to do it because it's incredibly labor intensive. So it immediately demands community and demands the building of community. So it's a very beautiful way to build a structure or a home or anything really because it gets them imbibed with that that community spirit and energy. So it's a bit of a balance because it sounds like the materials are really cheap compared to a traditional building. You know, you've got dirt, you've got these sacks, a bit of barbed wire and a hell of a lot of elbow grease. Um, some of the structures, I'm just looking um, online at some of these... Um, Super Adobe structures around the world, and they like it's pretty, um, pretty fantastical creations. What have you been, um, 
what, 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 you know, you spoke about um, that original architect, uh, Nadil, um, be, becoming a bit ill with the current um, construction environment in, in, in the West, I imagine. He was working mm. in America. Mm. What about you? What, what, how did you get into all of this? I thought you were a musician. I definitely was. And we have music t- together, let it be known. Um, but, yeah, we... it As soon as I got into the world of natural building and um, sustainable living and stuff like that, the, the repetition of that story uh, became just so evident, really. It's um, pretty much the way that um, Nada became ill from stress and a, and a huge multi-million dollar firm that he ran, architectural firm that he ran, uh, he got a lot of stomach ulcers and became really ill because of the constant stress, the constant grind, which is just the most, it's just the oldest story in our current culture, you know. It's so, um, it's so overplayed. It's become, we almost don't notice it anymore, even though everybody says it every single day, that they're worn out, they're tired, they don't enjoy their lifestyle, they get no real fulfillment from what they're doing, but they still do it every day. So <clears throat> it's very, very common, but nobody seems to have the outlet or the um, the escape to be able to really move away in a substantial way from, from that lifestyle. So mine was very similar as well, as you mentioned I did used to play music. I grew up in Melbourne, loved the scene, loved the Melbourne music scene, loved the party scene, did all that stuff as, you know, a young 20-year-old and then just didn't really do much for most of my 20s, which I think is also another um, another real outlet for a lot of people, a lot mm. of young people as well. You know, they maybe don't know exactly what their passion is, so they um, just do what they believe is fun and enjoyable but if you really step back and actually look at at what you're doing with your life and your time and your body it's um not actually the best way to spend your time just like avoidance almost absolutely Mm. yeah absolutely and this this idea that um to stimulate your body and your mind you know with potentially other substances this idea that that is rewarding in itself like is actually um yeah a a fallacy that i um really noticed quite quite powerfully mm. um so yeah as i was heading up towards heading away to california to study in 2014 um i pretty much just turned my back on all of that and turned my back on 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 the lifestyle and used used this um journey across the ocean as a as a real um signpost in my life and a real um a real turning point really and then i i went and, and met this community of builders that run the um, institute now that Nada passed away in 2011, but it's really, really run incredibly well um, still uh, by a beautiful team of, of teachers and builders. And yeah, and that just transformed my life, that that community really. Like the buildings caught my attention immediately and I love the buildings and the way that they're built, but then the community is, is at least 50% of, of what we do. And as soon as I got back from overseas, I started teaching it. And I found the exact same, um, the exact same community here in Australia. And every single workshop that I've run, which has been about fifteen or more, every workshop, every thing that I've found in contact with this natural building world has been incredibly open, incredibly stimulating, beautiful, encouraging, nurturing, uh, healthy, and fun. Really, like it's just so much fun to wake mm. up every day and and build with your, you know, new beautiful friends. It's really cool. Mm. So what have you built and um, what could you build? Mm. 
Well, the could is really almost anything. It's such a <clears throat> Super Adobe first before that um, term was coined and actually patented in, in, in the US. It was called flexible form rammed earth. So rammed earth building is um, a pretty established and common um, building, natural building technique, more so in Western Australia. It's a lot more popular over there. It's, it's still quite boutique and relatively expensive here in Victoria, but it's incredibly breathtaking and, and beautiful. Um, so it was called flexible form rammed earth because um, you're not constrained because you're using the bag and you get to lay it with your hands. You're not constrained by any um, structure that you need to build first to build the walls within. So anything that you can imagine, you can build pretty much with Super Adobe um, because you can make it do twists, turns, spirals, anything really. So you can do anything, but um, almost anything. But um, it, Hard corners. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> right angles. I mean, we don't like the straight line. Um, but for, for a lot of reasons, but, um, yeah, Super Adobe's one weakness, which is avoidable, uh, is the straight line. So it makes you think, you know, um, sorry to be corny, but it makes you think outside the box from the get go. And that's really, really good and really, really cool and, and very creative. So even Superman had a weakness. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and this one, you just need to put a few things in your design and it's fine anyway. So I think the, um, super Adobe, uh, rolls off the tongue a little bit better than the flexible formed, Form rammed earth. Uh, rammed earth. Yep. And I, when I, when I first heard super Adobe, I was thinking like, um, dirt special effects. <laughs> or, um, is that, is that right? You work with super Adobe in the dirt, like you're doing absolutely. after effects with soil. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a bad joke. But it I've is. still said it twice this morning. Um, it's yeah. about, I don't know. I, I used to edit films. It's hilarious if you've ever edited films or done any sound editing. I have. I've done a lot. That's why I know. it's funny. It is funny. So, um, what are you working on at the moment? And I also just want to know you, you spoke you spoke about the community that you develop. Um, is it and and you have said that it, at the moment it's boutique because of I imagine mainly the labour and you need the know how. The people that are building these structures, you know, you have a business curve architecture. You go out and build these structures on people's properties. Why do they want to build with Super Adobe? Are they is everyone who's building with it buying into the lifestyle that you've described, or is there also people building with it because it's just a really Good way to build, mm. or is it a kind of a balance of both? Definitely a balance of both, and everyone comes at it um, comes at it differently. Really, um, you're right. One huge advantage is the the cheapness of it, and we've just um, I just helped um, run a team out in Gippsland building the first council approved Super Adobe Roundhouse in Australia which is a huge step forward for the technology. So although it was began being pioneered in 1991, 90, early 90s, um, by Nada and his team, uh, it's only it's only kind of just reaching our shores still. You know, we're always, Australia's always a little bit behind the mark, um, just reaching our, our shores in a um, mainstream way, really. So the Roundhouse was, um, which is called the Willow End Roundhouse, um, it's all over the interwebs, Um that was a huge project. It's one of the biggest Super Adobe projects, um, definitely, um, almost in the world, really, out of all the ones that I follow. There are some very, very big ones, but um, that one's up there. So it's a huge step forward for the technology here in Australia. But um, although although the materials themselves are cheap, you do need a lot of labour to do it. So luckily at the moment we're on the up upward um, ascent of 
amazing sustainability movement that's happening. It's really creeping into the mainstream's um, thoughts, you know, all this fight against plastic and war on plastic and all those things. It's really becoming um, a, a common thing to think about the environment. So if you can um, take a shovel and dig something from your land and then build a house with it, it's pretty much the most... Um, uh, the the shortest distance the material needs to travel, so Very it's incredibly ecologically um, geared. Mm. So um, so that's really really great, but it does need a lot of people. But I still don't think of that at all as a negative because I think the illness, the greatest illness in our current society here in Australia, is the lack of community and the inability to to know your neighbours and to work um, to work with people in a in a healthy productive um, and exciting way. And that's really, I think, one of the biggest illnesses. So it immediately says um, it immediately says you need to get to know your neighbour. And if you're working side by side with someone and sweating it out, you can't... It's impossible to build a building of that scale with a poor team. So you actually must... You must create incredibly strong connections with people so that they so that they come with you and they build with you and they are part of the project so it's this awesome awesome thing it makes you not build straight lines it makes you build an incredibly um, close community around you and um, yeah it, it builds incredibly naturally and ecologically as well so it's just it's a no-brainer in my in my mind so I'm looking at the Willow End Roundhouse at the moment. It's an amazing-looking building. Um, can I ask, uh, you know, and it looks like there's heaps of different people working on it. Can I ask, what's it for? You're saying it's council-approved. And who came to help you build it and why? Why did they come? Does it actually need council approval? Because uh, um, then there could be structures that theoretically you could take down, yeah? So mm. they don't actually necessarily they're need not, council approval. They're not. Fully permanent, is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Um, this one's council approval in the sense that um, in, a, in Victoria, in every state, it's a little bit different. If you get over a certain floor space of um, size, you need to have a permit to build it. Um, so Victoria's a bit of a stickler for it, but that's all right. You get um, up to 10 square metres. So a lot of the workshops that I ran previous to this, uh, we built under that 10 square metre floor space thing, which in a circle, because a lot of the things are circles, it's about 3.6 metres in diameter. So it's enough to chuck a little double bed and make it a little um, a little granny flat or a Airbnb or, or a meditation space or something like that. So that's mainly what we've done. And then we just got catapulted in the biggest way ever into the Willow End Roundhouse, which was my first major project and Curvitecture's first major project, um, which definitely needed council approval um, because of its size. Uh, it's about 27 metres from furthest point to furthest point. Um, so it's a huge family home. And um, the owner, which is um, Peter Negus, um, and Ursula Alquir, who um, also fronted the Lock the Gate campaign. Um, she uh, is, they're both exceptionally hard workers and uh, very ecologically minded. So they came from it, um, from a, a little bit um, from that side of things. They wanted to obviously build ecologically, um, but also um, it is quite cheap. Out of the whole project, which is a huge family home, the cheapest parts or with the cheapest material parts, were the walls, um, which is very surprising if you can see a photo of it. It's absolutely massive, and the walls are huge. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, that was just 
a real massive push. And the people that came for that were, there's a um, website called Workaway, which is kind of like woofing, which you might have heard, heard of. It's an acronym, yeah. Workers on Organic Farms, Willing Workers on Organic Farms, which started um, quite a while ago in the mm. 70s or something like that. And there's a um, slightly more um, kind of savvy works um, website and company that is Workaway, and you don't have to just be a farm. You can be anything, and it's all over the world. And I highly encourage traveling in this way. It helps people travel on a lot, a lot more of a budget, and it gives you a, a real cultural exchange while you're, you're there. So you go and you work for a few hours a day, and you get food and board, um, and you get to be able to experience the local culture in a totally different way than a normal tourist would, mm. and you get to not have to pay for hostels and things like that. So um, we've had we started writing the list because we've been building it for about two years. We've started writing the list, and we're over 150 people from Workaway um, have come to assist us building um, and be volunteers to build the building. So we got on any given week a new influx of amazing travelers, a lot of them quite young, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in their twenties, full of beans, traveling the world, maybe for the first time they've turned up in beautiful Gippsland, uh, Victoria to work on this groundbreaking, um, natural building project in this, uh, really beautifully run community by myself and uh, my building partner, Millie. And, uh, so yeah, they come just, they can't wait to learn and meet new friends and build and do something really, really productive. So they're the people that, that have come to help build it and um, obviously working alongside the two owners as well and um, pretty much anyone anyone else we can grab. Um, so, yeah, I we completed the walls and that was the end of my... Um, my um, obligations to to that build and also was um, pretty pretty knackered by the end of the end of the nine months so I stepped away from the project and my building partner Millie um, continued to run a smaller community there to do a lot of the smaller things like plastering and stuff like that so it's um, nearing completion and they're hopefully going to get their certificate of occupancy um, very soon so yeah that's just been epic there are other council approved ones there's one over in wa which is actually a dome home so i mentioned briefly that <clears throat> super adobe and Earthbag, um the way that nada approached it was um with the architecture and geometry of his homeland back in iran so um the dome which a lot of mosques and um and traditional buildings over there do follow they follow domes and vaults um that's what he chose to bring into it and to um, and to work with. So the house over in WA is a single earth bag, which is the individual rice sacks instead of the long continual tubes of Super Adobe, individual bags, and it's about four or five domes all put together to build a family home. And they're spruiking that um, they're going to have their ha family house built for $40,000. Um, by the end of it because they're two owner builders as well that can do a lot of the work similar thing they're running workshops and people are just coming uh, to work on the weekends so it's a really it's a it's a nicely sized house but it's also achievable and quite um, quite quite modest so it's really good they got on like a current affair and all these things like that and uh, there's just been some really 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 great um, great uh, media coverage on it mm. so there's that one and then the first the first one i believe one of the first ones was 
in Adelaide, in the suburb of Adelaide. They made a granny flat um, made by Jeremy Millington, and that was my first experience with Super Adobe. I went over there and learned with them. And, um, yeah, so it's trickling in and there's, it's still very much on the fringes and, um, but pretty much my goal, uh, with Curvitecture is to promote Super Adobe and natural building in general. Like, although Super Adobe is my specialty, we work in, um, in all types of natural building. So anything that uses natural materials, natural locally sourced materials and often builds in a communal way, that's natural building in my, in my mind. And we also quote and build a whole bunch of other um, natural building techniques as well. Hmm. We've seen kind of over the last five years or so, there is huge kind of um, market open up of, you know, mini homes and, you know, like natural building and all of these kind of things, um, you know, programs on TV of these, you know, mini homes, which, you know, the ones that they show you on the TV shows are you know, actually seem to be worth like about $200,000, which sort of seems to defeat the purpose of, of the mini, the mini home. home. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it, it's interesting anyway, because it's clearly a reaction to what the housing market is that, you know, it's become so expensive for people to, to rent, to own their own home for, you know, all these kind of things that are interwoven with, you know, the kind of American Australian dream. And, you know, I guess what are the kind of obstacles for, you know, trying to get these... Um, you know, to change the kind of market to say there's a different way of doing things. And, and like you said, it's not just about the um, the cost, but, you know, the materials used are a more natural kind of thing. And, and also going back to, you know, a community, which is something that particularly in bigger cities is something that has really been lacking. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny homes, tiny, tiny houses on wheels. You're right. Is a total movement at the moment, which is um, really good to see as well. And although a lot of people choose to build with reclaimed materials when they do a tiny home. So yeah, a tiny home is, it, tra- it looks like a tra- traditional home, but it's just been miniaturized. It's like a dollhouse of a normal house mm. and they're very, very beautiful and often um, fitted out really, really well. And they're actually, uh, I think, a really, really good um, bridge between the um, you know standard mindset of what a house is because it looks exactly like a normal house. It's just tiny. It's a lot. It's a. It's seemingly a bit easier to get people on board than if you show them these crazy dome houses that are out in the desert. You know because not everyone wants to live in this like Star Wars esque kind of Tatooine like mm. dome house in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it, it, it's kind of good that they're. Um, they've almost, you know, they've almost become a little bit hipster almost, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of that happening as well. So mm-hmm. that's amazing that, um, that, yeah, these, these community, um, mindsets are just seemingly changing without anyone needing to market it or, or, or anything like that. It is, you're right. It's just a reaction to the, to the housing market saying, we can't do this. You know, mm. like some of the tiny houses are up there. I'm building a, a freaky one that's been very cheap, but, um, some of them are very expensive, but you can also do them really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. So, and when they're on wheels, you may not need to purchase land, you know, depending on the rules of the state that you live in. And that's a big factor as well. And, you know, I don't think they only can be built in the desert. They can be built anywhere can't they be building mm. nice shaded bushland in gippsland or you know out near Castlemaine. you know you can build them in different places but you know it's really interesting as well this connection it, it is a, a style of building it's, a, it's an approach but it's also a lifestyle i understand you know you're living in an intentional community at the moment um mm. are you building 
a structure there or how does um how does you know all these experiences with nat- natural building and building community how has that changed the way that you approach your day-to-day life like what kind of lifestyle are you living out at Eden Hill Farm mm. well it's it's completely in some senses, it's similar to what I was doing, but I pretty much sat in my share house in Preston, where I lived there for two years, and it was me and um, two lovely friends of mine, um, and I think we would have shared probably three meals together, or it probably would have been five, I'd be generous to say five, over, over two years, mm. mainly due to time schedule, but also it's just not really a habit um, that at least we were into, I know some share houses do. Mm. And I just kind of sat there in my room and and was also just looking at my rent and, and just thinking, like, where is this going? Like, it's actually going nowhere. I need to be paying somebody to sleep, you know, to sleep and shower somewhere. You know, it just seemed so... Um, just wrong. So wrong. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I just kind of sat there and didn't have... I, I had dreams of building a little tiny house and just parking it in the driveway and paying 50 bucks a week just to use the bathroom, you know? I, that kind of started my thought about it, and I didn't ever think, oh, I'm going to go live on an intentional community. Um, that just kind of grew out of a long workshop that we ran on, on the first community that I lived at. We ran a workshop on the property to build a few things, to build the beginnings of a, of a home there. Um, and then we, at the end of that, the owner invited everyone to come and come and live, anyone who wants to come and live there, which is pretty generous. And, um, yeah, so pretty much the way that it's um, changed my life has been the fact that I wake up every day excited, in love with the people that I live with, and we share every meal and um, every minute together. Now, I'm very sorry, but we have completely run out of time. Totally fine. Thank you so much for joining us. Hayden is from Curvitecture, which you can find online at curvitecture.com. Um, they build super adobe houses. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.